What will happen next? We have protests in France that are getting out of control. They have been for a while. And we also have, at least in Israel, those protests which were getting out of control. It looks like with the delay from uh, Netanyahu there of this judicial law in Israel that things are going, are calming down somewhat. But, I mean, the volatility of this decade is just off the charts. It's almost as if we're still experiencing the aftershocks of the coronavirus epidemic in a lot of ways. Maybe it will resonate, you know, again, these aftershocks throughout the entire decade. I'll give you some good news. Oil is fairly low. Could you imagine if we're at like $150 oil? So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And the drama is unceasing here. As a news person, I mean, you have to say maybe this is a golden age. The narrative, the story, whether it's, you know, nuclear deployments in Belarus, uh, you know, Xi and Putin saying it's going to be changes that aren't seen in 100 years, bank runs and regional small banks in the U.S., and on and on. How is gold below $2,000? One asks oneself. Well, it is. It is at $1,965 here, and so maybe that's an opportunity, not financial advice. Hopefully, it goes down a lot more. That's what I'm hoping for. I mean, as they say, you don't want gold to go up. You know, that's that's bad news for us because if gold's going up, it might be good for your portfolio, but maybe it's bad for a lot of other things. So true enough, Interesting developments here out of South America. The president of Bolivia, I believe his name is President Arce, hope I'm pronouncing that right, A-R-C-E, he was making reference, and we're going to see it in the news stories, to this idea of not only there being an OPEC-like cartel for nickel, which is what Indonesia still seems to want, the last I heard, but that now South America wants to create a OPEC-like cartel for lithium. And as we'll see in the stories, South America has something like 70% of the world's lithium. So this is quite interesting. And what else was interesting about that story, again, we're going to get into it shortly here, was this mistrust that exists between, again, the global South and the West. We saw it last week again with the president of Uganda, who told off the EU in regard to this oil pipeline that they want to build, I think, between... Tanzania and Uganda, and how the EU wanted to clamp down on it for environmental reasons. And then he went on to praise China. So you can hear all that last episode. This week's update on that is the Bolivian president echoing, apparently, according to the president of Bolivia, echoing the president of Mexico's thought that there should be an OPEC-like cartel for lithium. The president of Bolivia, Arce, openly, you know, shared his concern that, you know, Southern Command in the U.S. might take them out, these democratically elected governments, according to him at least, democratically elected. I know some Bolivians, my girlfriend's Bolivian. So there is debate as to what's going on in Bolivia and whether things are democratic. Nevertheless, the president of Bolivia, wondering out loud to himself, not some fringe analyst here, but, you know, the president himself, wondering out loud if they'll be taken out by the U.S. So just more evidence that there is a sense of mistrust between the global south. Two words we're seeing more and more often 
in the news between the global south and the west. So things remain interesting. The banking crisis does seem to have kind of, again, dropped out of the headlines for a couple of days. And with that, risk assets seem to have rallied. Gold seems to have fallen back below $2,000. Could be an opportunity, not financial advice, but maybe if we get a $1,700 gold price. I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me want to buy with both hands. And we're working on getting Jeffrey Christian back on the program Seems like the timing is wonderful to get his latest thoughts. But for this program, we have a wonderful guest as well. We have Northern Miner Group President Anthony Vaccaro, and he joins us with his latest thoughts on what took place at the PDAC conference, the world's biggest mining conference in Toronto. And he shares his thoughts on what people were talking about, whether it was in the panels, many of which he moderated or whether it was just on the ground, at the parties, at everything. Anthony gives his take on what happened there, as well as his take on the wider world and what is going on and where the Northern Miner Group itself is going amidst all this volatility. So it's a wonderful interview, a timely interview, from the president of the Northern Miner Group on this podcast. Other than that, I mean, we continue to see developments in Europe. So there is the European Critical Raw Materials Act. So that is CRMA. They are attempting to basically create a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, and it is about critical raw materials. And I think the ace up their sleeve is this idea that they are going to really move quickly on permitting. And I would say this is a very very smart solution. You would think that Canada might act accordingly because if you can't compete with money and who can compete with these trillion dollar budgets that are coming out of the United States, you can compete on permitting and speeding up that process. That is a very doable thing that is not beyond the reach of any country. So that is a very interesting strategy coming out of Europe, again, to increase the speed of permitting. So very interesting there. And meanwhile, in Canada, there has been a leak, kind of like I'd call it like an official, unofficial leak. Two sources have told Reuters that there's going to be a tax credit for equipment used to produce electric vehicles in Canada. So that is also interesting. That budget is apparently going to come out today a 30% investment tax credit to boost cleantech manufacturing. So everybody is still focused on cars and how we're going to make more cars. And in order to do that, we need to get minerals, which we might not be able to get anymore from Russia and may have issues getting from China, who processes something like almost all the graphite, from my understanding, almost all the rare earths, and something like two-thirds of the lithium is processed in China, from my understanding, reading these stories to you here on a weekly basis. So all the pieces of the puzzle are moving together here to try and make something happen. And meanwhile, countries like Bolivia are seeing their opportunity with this focus on metals. And these crazy related stories, I don't know if you saw that viral video that was going around Twitter of this gold mine in the Congo and these artisanal miners that got trapped. And all you see at first is a, you know, a hill of dirt and a person with his spade 
digging wildly and digging out with his hands. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see this person jump out of the hill. And then you proceed to see, I think it's eight other people. So nine people jump out of this, you know, tunnel that caved in. And it really reminded me of Siddharth Kara's book. What is it called? Probably a book that all miners should read. And there he is on NPR, The New Yorker, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives by Siddharth Kara. Now that is about cobalt in the Congo. This, from my understanding, this video that went viral was a artisanal gold mine. But, you know, it sure just kind of fits into this picture of this scramble for metals from the very top echelons of power, U.S. and China, where you see it's a major priority, all the way down to the poorest people in the world digging with their bare hands in the dirt in the Congo for gold and cobalt. This is where we are. And all in the name of building cars, I'll remind you, it's all in the name of selling the next generation of cars to the world. And I guess, you know, when cars are selling for $70,000 each, I guess I understand this, you know, scramble here because they sure are getting expensive. And I don't know how people can afford it. I assume they're going to come down in price. Who is going to spend $70,000 on a car these days? Maybe you have. And so... I say it with no judgment. I mean, maybe you've spent more and some people love their cars and there's nothing wrong with it. But I, you know, for a lot of people in the middle class and below, these are simply, you know, astronomical figures here to get a car. So anyways, it is an interesting landscape out there. And don't forget, actually, these tectonic shifts in the geopolitical landscape with Xi you know, waving goodbye or, you know, saying, sharing thoughts with Putin there, right there with the cameras there saying changes not seen in a hundred years are underway. And you really do get that impression. This decade, again, is a decade of volatility and it still feels like we're feeling the aftershocks of the COVID earthquake, which occurred pretty much right as we turned into 2020. So a very interesting program. We're going to add to our thesis here of this mistrust of the global south towards the west and also of this thesis that there is an increasing resource nationalism. You might think these are already obvious ideas, but I believe knowledge is very hard won and we have to build this methodically and with examples over time to really feel like we know what we're talking about here with a huge amount of skepticism of our own views. But what I'm seeing out here in these news stories, which we're about to get to, is more evidence to support these theses. So with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us once again. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Bolivia pushes for Latin America-wide lithium policy. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on northernminer.com. 
Bolivia's government is calling its lithium-producing neighbors to forge ahead with the idea of setting a Latin American-wide policy on the exploitation of the coveted battery metal. The idea, part of a broader initiative involving Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, and Chile to form an OPEC-like cartel, seeks to collectively boost the bargaining power of these countries, President Luis Arce said in a speech in La Paz. And we have a quote from the local paper La Razón that quoted Arce, quote, We must be united in the market in a sovereign manner with prices that benefit our economies. And one of the ways already proposed by Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is to think of a kind of lithium OPEC. Arce said, Bolivia holds the world's largest lithium resource at 21 million tons, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The area of sprawling salt flats known as the Lithium Triangle, which includes northern Chile and Argentina, has about 65% of the globe's known resources of the white metal. If Peruvian, Mexican, and Brazilian potential reserves were added, the region would hold nearly 70% of the world's lithium reserves. This would translate into a restructuring of the world economic scenario around the energy transition and provide a new sound source of income for Latin American economies, according to the Latin American Strategic Center for Geopolitics. Bolivia, which has almost no industrial production or commercially viable reserves, inked in January a deal with a consortium that includes Chinese battery giant CAT to jointly extract lithium from its Uyuni and Oruro salt flats. The partnership would give the group of companies, which also includes mining giant CMOC, rights to develop two lithium plants. RK, who wants to industrialize Bolivia's lithium before the end of his term in 2025, expressed concerns about foreign meddling in the lithium business, particularly from the United States. And we have a quote from RK, quote, We don't want our lithium to be in the Southern Command's crosshairs, nor do we want it to be a reason for destabilizing democratically elected governments or foreign harassment, end quote. So there is no sense of goodwill anymore. They are very concerned that they will be overthrown by the U.S., their democratically elected governments. is like, it's quite stark what's happened here. And I was discussing how the Iraq war, you know, was basically the beginning of this. Something I'd left out, but we've talked about in the past, another major undermining of Western credibility happened during COVID, when all of the vaccines were basically hoarded by the U.S. and Europe, leaving out a lot of the global South. And I think that wound is still unhealed. So continuing on, Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia have been talking about creating a lithium cartel since July last year. They now seek to integrate other Latin American nations with an incipient lithium industry, including Brazil and Mexico. Analysts, including geopolitical monitors Armand Sidhu, believe that bringing the idea to fruition is likely to spark opposition from environmentalists and indigenous groups, that contributed to left-wing victories in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. He also warned of additional obstacles, including China's monopolistic position in the industry, investors' fears, and the long-term political viability of such an idea. Very interesting. Continuing on, Chinese lithium price dives in heated auto price war. 
So sticking with lithium here, China's lithium prices are plunging faster than expected this year, down 34% in the last four weeks alone, hit by a slump in demand for electric vehicles in the world's biggest market that has left stocks of the metal piling up. And this is Reuters via mining.com. Spot lithium carbonate prices assessed by fast markets fell to 260,000 yuan, which is $38,000 per ton this week, less than half the price quoted last November. Though prices have been falling since late last year, the decline has accelerated in the last four weeks, exceeding the 22% drop during the three months from November to February. Five analysts polled by Reuters last month had expected the price would drop to 300,000 yuan by the end of this year. And again, it was at 260,000 this week. Quote, the scope of such a price fall has exceeded our expectations, end quote, consultancy Rystad Energy said in a March 17th note. The world's biggest EV market was already facing slowing demand after China cut subsidies to the sector from this year. Now EVs are also facing fierce competition from conventional vehicles after car makers, including Volkswagen Automotive, Geely Automobile, slashed prices on more than 40 brands ahead of stricter emission rules taking effect on July 1st. Traditional car makers and dealers are cutting prices to clear inventories of vehicles that do not meet the standard. And we have another quote, Vicky Zhao, a Beijing-based senior analyst at Fast Markets, quote, the unprecedented price cuts among traditional automakers will eat EVs market share in the short term, hitting lithium demand further. Continuing on, JP Morgan traders should get prison for spoofing, U.S. says. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The former head of JP Morgan Chase Precious Metals Business and his top gold trader, should get multi-year prison terms after they were convicted of spoofing the market for years, the U.S. government said in a court filing. Michael Novak, who ran the precious metals desk, should get five years, and Greg Smith, the top trader, should get six years, prosecutors said Tuesday in a sentencing memo to the federal judge in Chicago who presided over the trial. The recommendation was for longer terms than traders at other banks convicted of spoofing. The government said significant sentences are warranted because the two had spoofed for years and knew what they were doing was prohibited. At trial, prosecutors presented evidence that included detailed trading records, chat logs, and testimony by former co-workers who, quote, pulled back the curtain, end quote, on how Novak and Smith moved precious metals prices up and down for profit from 2008 to 2016. Both men, quote, abuse their senior positions on the desk to normalize their market manipulation and indoctrinate younger traders, end quote, prosecutors said. Novak coached one young trader to, quote, lie to J.P. Morgan's compliance department, end quote, after he had been flagged for spoofing. And Novak later pressured him, quote, not to plead guilty and cooperate with the government's investigation, end quote. Attorneys for Novak and Smith couldn't be immediately reached for comment. Sentencing memos from the defense teams are due next month. The defendants are scheduled to be sentenced in early June. Continuing on, we have a column from Reuters, Europe turbocharges its critical minerals drive. So this is referring to the Critical Raw Materials Act, the CRMA, which sounds like European legislation. That is a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, in the U.S., and it says here the European Union has unveiled the accelerator in its drive to reduce the bloc's import dependency for critical minerals and metals. The Critical Raw Materials Act, CRMA, will significantly improve Europe's domestic extraction, processing, and recycling capacity for metals such as lithium and rare earths, 
according to Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission. The act comes with targets for production and for reducing dependency on any single third country. China currently dominates the supply chain for many of the entries on Europe's list of, quote, strategic metals. The EU is also playing catch up with the United States, which is also investing heavily in critical minerals capacity under the aegis of the Defense Production Act and Inflation Reduction Act. Europe may, however, have given itself a competitive edge by moving to streamline project permitting, a tortuous process that often drags on for years before the first shovel hits the ground. And finally, the CRMA covers a subset of the EU's critical minerals list with particular focus on battery metals like lithium, nickel, cobalt, and manganese, and magnet inputs such as boron and rare earths. Copper is on the list as an enabler of all things electric, but aluminum and zinc aren't, which is a striking omission given the recent shrinkage of European production capacity. And Evangelos Mitilineos, president of industry group Euromito, said, quote, today's strategic raw material list must not be the finished picture. End quote. It probably won't be. The CRMA includes a provision for periodically updating the list to reflect evolving economic importance and supply risks across the critical metal spectrum. And finally, just a couple of headlines here. Lifecycle to build French battery processing facility. This is Reuters via mining.com. So some lithium ion battery recycling in France. This is expected to open in 2024 and complement similar sites in Germany and Norway. So that company, again, is called LiCycle, L-I-Cycle. And then we have another company here, Serba Solutions, to pour $300 million into South Carolina battery recycling plant. So another battery recycling plant, this time in South Carolina, and that is Reuters via mining.com. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, which is yielding 3.539%. Let's call that 3.54%, and that is 0.02% lower than last week. So pretty even from last week, healthily below 4% here. Turning to our precious metals, gold is trading at $1,964.38 per ounce. That is $21 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $23.10 per ounce. That is 90 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading $3 higher at $964.91 per ounce. And palladium is also trading higher at $1,412.94 per ounce. That is $26 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading two cents lower at $4.09 per pound. Iron ore is trading $6 lower at $122.50 per ton. Aluminum is trading three cents higher at $1.07 per pound. Lead is trading three cents higher at 98 cents per pound. Nickel is trading five cents higher at $10.55 per pound. Tin is trading $1.05 higher at $11.26 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.50 per pound. Lithium is $5 lower at $39.01 per pound. 
And we're starting to track uranium here, which is at $50.35 per pound. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.32 per pound. So industrial metals are generally higher, interestingly, and precious metals are higher. It kind of feels like a risk-on trade, doesn't it? I mean, copper, Dr. Copper, is eight cents higher. So maybe as there's a sense that this banking crisis, that there is a brief break in the banking crisis, at least, uh, we seem to be seeing a little bit of a risk-on trade. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Northern Miner Group President Anthony Vaccaro, who shares his thoughts on PDAC, as well as his larger thoughts on the mining industry globally and the larger impacts of geopolitics and monetary policy on the industry, and also what the Northern Miner Group is up to. So it's a very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome someone I've known for over a decade now, Anthony Vaccaro, president of the Northern Miner Group to the Northern Miner Podcast. Anthony, welcome to the show. Excellent, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on, and we do this, I guess, every six months to a year, and it's always super interesting to get your perspective on things. So for those that might not be familiar with you and or maybe with the Northern Miner Group, Tell us, what is the Northern Miner Group and what's involved when we say the Northern Miner Group? Thanks, Adrian. Yes, it's a, it's a term that's grown over the last couple of years in particular. So the Northern Miner Group encompasses three media brands. Obviously, the Northern Miner is one of those, but also Mining.com, which has grown to be one of the largest global news websites, and Canadian Mining Journal, which is one of the longest standing Canadian mining news outlets. It covers Canadian developing and producing mines and technological advancements in the industry. That's our media division. And then importantly, we also have a data division, which the brand Cost Mine Intelligence covers, both costing solutions and global mining database. And then our third one is the talent solution divisions, which holds two of the industry's leading brands, which is CareerMine for job postings and Edumine for online education. So a pretty comprehensive view on the whole mining sector, jobs, media, and intelligence. So that's super interesting. And before I ask you about PDAC and going into bigger issues here, what do you guys have on the horizon? What's upcoming for the Northern Miner Group? Well, yeah, I think, you know, what's important to the to the audience to, to connect to that is what's in it for them. Like, why should they care that the Northern Miner Group has data, talent, solution, and news? Everything we're doing now and developing, we have new data products that are coming out. We have new courses that are coming out, but it's leveraging the power. We have data at the center of our business through the Cost Mine Intelligence platform. That feeds into our journalists, that feeds into the new products. We just launched something called Marco Polo out of our media division, but it's fueled by the Mining Intelligence Database. That's a global mining database with company, asset, and people information so that people can quickly find who they need to talk to in the industry. And we have that across the board. So our media side helps inform and get top leaders to give courses on the edge of mine side. Our edge of mine side 
helps educate people in the industry. So the, the key points in terms of taking advantage of the opportunity in the mining industry, keeping up to date on news, having the best data available to you and educating yourself, developing your career. We're able to offer all of them and we're interconnecting and wiring them all together in a way that they can mutually amplify and offer people the most seamless experience they could have to develop their uh, their knowledge and their careers. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for helping inform us on that. So talking then about the industry at large, we just had the PDAC conference in Toronto. How did that go? What was your sense on the ground there uh, at PDAC? It was nice back at the regular time of year. So last year it was in June. Now we're back to the regular March for PDAC, which everyone has gotten used to over the many, many years. And it was good to see the foot traffic right back up. I think it ended at about 23,000. So for PDAC, that's a good solid number. I think during the last bull run, it got up to around 30,000. And during the depth of the bear, it was probably down around 17,000. So a good number for it. Lots of good conversations going on, lots of foot traffic. And what was very interesting, I think, for this PDAC was how much the conversation was very much about geopolitics. So if I thought back, it, it reminded me the last time there were this many impassioned conversations going on and, that, and the last time there was this much interest around metals and what they mean to the economy would have been in the last bull run from 2002 to 2007. And that was around China, but that was around China, a very positive light, right? That was around an emerging middle class in tri China and what that meant on the demand side of the equation. Now, here we are, you know, 10, 15 years out from that. And lo and behold, China is at the center of the conversation again, but it's not in the same positive light this time, right? Now it's all around decoupling of the Chinese and the Western economies. Now it's all around commodity encumbrance, who is going to ultimately hold the most influence in regions like Africa, like the greater Asian area, like South America, and what that's going to mean for the West and the and China and Russia's ability to secure the metals that they need to drive their economies, especially at a time when those how we're defining good economic growth is changing, right? As we're talking about energy transition and trying to be cleaner and how much more metal that needs. So yeah, a very interesting time at the PDC. Those were most of the conversations. I myself, I think I was a part of six or seven panels or public speakings, and all of them kind of coalesced around those issues. We might have started off talking about nickel mines in Canada or nickel exploration. But it very quickly becomes a conversation about China and supply chains. So an interesting time. And Adrian, I got to give you credit. You've done an amazing job with this podcast, tackling these big global themes. I know sometimes you'll reference, you know, what is, how does this connect to commodities as you're talking about what's going on in Africa? And the point is, it really, really does. And I think, you know, uh, what you've done here with the podcast is great because increasingly people, if you're going to understand commodities and what's under, what's happening with metals, you need to understand what's going on in the geopolitical sphere right now. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And I totally agree in the sense that it requires a different kind of expertise in a sense than we're used to. Like when I started the Northern Miner in 2012, it was more a issue of, you know, trying to understand the fundamentals of metals, supply and demand. But now if you're trying to, you know, predict two or three years out, you almost have to have different kinds of scenarios based on what you think might happen geopolitically. And so it's a different kind of algebra that's required here. And as far as this whole, you know, as I was framing it last episode, this almost battle for Africa 
Was there much that was said on Africa itself, just out of curiosity? There was, and I put the question to a few panelists myself, high-ranking former government officials and bankers. And the way I phrase it, I was a bit concerned with the responses I got, was we know what China offers when they go into Africa. Officially, it's Belt and Road. Unofficially, it can be turning a blind eye to certain human rights abuses with autocratic regimes within Africa. What's the West's response to that? And is it going to take hold in those countries? And no one's really been able to articulate to me, I mean, outside of the political stuff, I mean, you've done an excellent job talking about Anthony Blinken going to Africa, Kamala Harris, and the things that Joe Biden has said, but that's a lot of just political speak. Those are just words. In a real business sense, what is in it for an African developing country if they go with the West over China? And China can articulate it very clearly. Belt and Road, they're doing about over a trillion dollars between 2017 and 2027. And with G7, they're trying to get their act together, right? They've pledged $600 billion, which still falls short. And if you're a country that's going to try to get access to that, you're dealing with seven countries, seven democratic countries that sometimes have a track record of dragging their heels and not delivering, or, and it's still $600 billion versus over a trillion, or the Chinese government was centrally controlled. And you know you're probably going to get your infrastructure built. Now, the quality of that infrastructure, that's another issue. That has been a problem with companies that have gone with Belt and Road over the last 10, 15 years. Some of them are not happy with it because of the quality of the infrastructure, but it's pretty compelling. It's compelling when on one side you can have processing facilities if you're an oil producing nation or if you're producing nickel to upgrade it up into a level that can be used in batteries. These are compelling things to offer and we'll see what the West can do. They're trying, but I think as of right now, from where we sit today, it's coming up a bit short. Yeah, I suspect you're right. And I think there is a sense from the global South and maybe Africa in particular that even if you make a deal with the West, that you never know when you're going to get some sort of human rights argument used against you, even for, I think they might perceive for cynical reasons as a means of kind of keeping this power over you. I think and whether that's true or not, you know, I think that is the perception. And I think they sort of feel if I was to group and generalize, which of course isn't going to be exactly accurate, but I think there's a sense that with China, you're not going to be, you know, judged on your human rights record. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a better scenario, but in the sense from their perspective, it's maybe a, weirdly a, a more a safer, quote unquote, and I put that in quotes, you know, scenario for them where, you know, maybe the infrastructure is not going to be perfect, but at least they feel like you know, they're not going to have some big surprise show up later. And as far as this idea of jurisdiction, did that come up much at the conference of this idea that, you know, we're going to, we're really excited, let's say about a, from PDAC's perspective and everybody that was there, maybe being more excited about mining companies that were maybe in, you know, quote unquote, Western jurisdictions. Did that ever come up at all? Or was it? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. No, it's great you brought that up because there's two things on that. There's absolutely more excitement about exploring and developing projects within North America and Europe, right? Europe is now actually investing and in trying to get the skills and the requirements and do the exploration and find metal deposits within Europe. And there's a political unanimity around this as well. Right. So you even have, you know, Democrats in the States, which traditionally we don't think of as being very mining friendly now are because they realize there's always exceptions. Of course, I'm generalizing in broad terms, 
but they are supportive, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA Act is, what is it really, right? It's a big investment into securing domestic supply and friendly supply of metals and natural resources towards the energy transition. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for projects that are in safer jurisdictions. That means more capital there. Then you layer in things like the IRA and the Canadian government's response as well, which pales in comparison to the IRA, but the Canadian government's looking to do more and they will do more because they have to do more. So now you have more access to capital from the government and investors looking, realizing that for their investment to be safe, it's better to be in North America and parts of South America. So for companies operating there, this is a good news story, right? For companies not operating, for companies with assets in Africa, people are going to have to really do their homework on a country-by-country, case-by-case basis, I would say. Interesting. And from your perspective, or just even the sense of people at, say, PDAC and just in general conversations you have, do you get the sense that people think that policymakers, say, in Canada or the U.S. are doing enough? you know, even with the IRA, is there a sense that they are doing enough or that they need to do more? We had many good conversations around this on panels and after and before panels. It's a tough one, right? They're definitely, the government is doing more than they've ever done in my lifetime and a lot of people's lifetimes for the mining and minerals industry, right? In terms of like hard dollars, in terms of saying the right things. What can they do beyond that? There's two points on that, right? First point is, We all know government doesn't have a great track record of picking winners. So government actually investing directly in mining companies, which they're talking about doing and which they've started doing on a smaller scale in Canada. We'll see how that plays out. It's pretty hard as an investor (laughs) picking the right junior mining stock. And now the government's going to try to do that. That'll be interesting. I see that being fraught with a little bit of difficulty where I think it's better and tax dollars are more appropriately spent is on things like the new CMETC, right? The Critical Minerals Exploration Tax Credit. So flow-through funding, giving tax credit, let the market decide what projects it wants to invest, but then give a big tax incentive. So the CMETC, the Critical Mineral Runs, is a 30% tax flow-through, right? That flows through so then an investor can deduct 30% of income against that. And that's double what the traditional flow-through was, the METC, which was 15%. So those are the kind of smart things I think government should be doing, and you'll see more of. The other side about investing hard dollars right into companies, I think we're going to start seeing some bad stories probably coming out of that if history is a precedent, which it usually is. Yeah, it seems like the, you know, it's kind of like the quick solution. It's like, oh, well, why doesn't the government just pay for these things in a sense? If we really need, say, a nickel mine in Ontario to be built, you know, what are we waiting for? Let's let's do like China does. But to your point, it's not an easy question to answer because I share your concern. It's like we're just waiting for the next really, you know, boondoggle or whatever you want to call it, the big next oh, yeah. huge scandal of how billions of dollars were wasted on this mine that was never built in yeah, southern Ontario. Money so. time instead, of, instead of investing, yeah, right? right. Absolutely. It's absolutely going to happen if they go that way. I would argue I'll just put a blank. I think it's a terrible way to go. Where government should do it. So the government should provide incentives like they're currently doing. Exploration is just too difficult. It's too difficult to pick who is going to be the next mine. Let the market sort that out. Now, where it gets interesting, let's stay with nickel because nickel is a great case in point. Let the market decide to pick the winners. Once we have those winners, there might be some exceptions. There might be a really great project that's later in development that there's a real consensus around and they need a little bit of help on funding. Okay, fine. Those would be exceptions, but not the rule. But once that new nickel is found, It's the processing part, I think, where government can start stepping in, right? We're woefully underinvested 
in Canada in terms of nickel processing facilities. We have Sudbury, we have one outside of Edmonton, we have one in the east. But to actually produce the amount of nickel that we need for batteries and for other elements of the economy here in Canada, we need massive investments there. Because then you've narrowed the risk spectrum a little bit, right? You're now just saying, okay, it's a process facility, it's science, it's technology. We know this much nickel is needed. We know we've the market has sourced this much new nickel in North America. Let's help it get processed. To me, that's a much wiser way to go. And hopefully we start seeing more of that. It's a bigger upfront capital spend for these kinds of smelters and processing facilities. But that's where I think the taxpayers' dollars would be better spent. Yeah, I think it might be like a better proving ground in a sense if we were, because in a sense it does kind of, as I mentioned on previous episodes, it does kind of offend our capitalist sensibilities out in the West that all of a sudden, okay, let's get the government involved. But if that's what's required, if there simply is not the investment capital coming into the business, I think it actually is sounds like a very pragmatic way of going about it. Well, you know, to your point saying, well, let's start with processing facilities, because to your point, it's kind of a more cut and dry sort of operation. It's not fraught with all the risks and challenges and unexpected, you know, situations that likely happen, you know, building a mine. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. And, and to that point, I think it's a great point, Adrian, to discuss, which is, you know, our democratic capitalist instincts, which are two different things, but interconnected in the West. And what happens in times of war, right? So I do think that there is times, I don't think anyone should be categorical about their beliefs about, about free market capitalism, because we know in the Second World War, to preserve, to defend free market capitalism and democracies, restrictions were put on, and they had to have been, otherwise we would have lost to Germany. It's as simple as that, right? There was government saying, this is what needs to be produced. We're going to pay for the processing of it. I mean, England closed its stock market for crying out loud, right? So, uh, and if we're heading towards that, I don't want to be a warmonger or a fearmonger, but it's certainly the case that there's a consensus that the geopolitical mood has shifted. You'd have to be blind not to see it. So if we're going towards greater tensions between China and Russia and the West, I think we'd be silly to be caught flat-footed about it, right? We need to secure our own metal supply. We need to be smart about the supply chain. And if that means government stepping in, let's find the smartest and the best ways for them to do that. To me, it seems to be more on the processing side than on the exploration side, for obvious reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, a pragmatic approach over, you know, perhaps ideology. So as yeah. we're kind of wrapping up here, there's also this whole other side of things with the precious metals and everything that's going on with the banks and everything. Was there much discussion about, say, I don't know, this whole de-dollarization? What are you seeing on that front and what are your thoughts? Yeah, and important to pivot because we everything we've been talking to up to now is more in that kind of critical minerals basket. So if we shift over to the precious metal side, uh, related but slightly different investment thesis around that, and absolutely a lot of conversation going on. I mean, PDAC was before SVB and Credit Suisse and Signature, and now Deutsche Bank. Everyone's got their eyes on Deutsche Bank now. So we'll see how much be interesting to get your perspective on that being in uh, in Berlin. <laughs> um, but the the de-dollarization one, absolutely right. We've seen this uh, this conversation ramp up. It's a theme that is not going away. I would say the consensus is not around whether de-dollarization is going to happen, it will happen, it's how long will it play out? It might, it might take 50 years to fully play out. It might happen much more rapidly than that. Generally, when these big paradigm shifts happen like this, they're very slow to get rolling, 
but then happen very quickly once there's a trigger point, right? So I think people should prepare themselves for that. I think gold is a very astute investment, even before SVB, a lot of the smart money, we saw record lows of physicals being held in a lot of the exchanges, the hold physical gold at Comex and in London. That was a sign that smart money was already trying to take possession of physical gold. And then you have SVB, and then you have the, the implications of higher interest rates, which of course the smart money probably saw coming, right? You're just, when you have these rates going up and up and up, you're gonna have a mismatch on balance sheets between assets and liabilities, right? And that's gonna eat away the equity. So this is a problem that although a lot of people are trying to say, oh, it's just regional banks, it's just SVB, it's just signature. Let's hope that it just is. It's not something that regulators and investors don't have to manage and to take into account because the value of bonds has gone down and most banks are sitting on that on their asset side. So what percentage of assets can go down? This is what investors have to ask themselves. How much can assets go down before equity is wiped out? That's the question. Because once that equity is wiped out, now you have a bank that's going to have a bank run and they're going to bank run and they're going to be insolvent. That's the trick. Now, the smarter banks, the difference between SVB and Signature is they didn't have interest rate hedging in place. So bigger, smarter banks do have that in place. And it's often very complicated to unwind what that position looks like. But that would be the counterpoint to contagion, to the fear of contagion, right? That the bigger banks should be pretty well hedged on the interest rate risk. Interesting. And as far as say like the miners, particularly say like the gold miners, do you have any thoughts? I mean, they've been beaten up quite a bit and they always have these kind of issues with, you know, inflation and the cost of oil. It seems like with the metal going up and oil kind of staying steady, I mean, what are we at here? We're at $70 on uh, WTI, $70 a barrel. I mean, what are you thinking about the miners? I should have, you know, fully expressed the the, fire, the final thought. So if the move is that in continuing interest rate heights because inflation is the biggest fear, right? Central banks have said inflation, and I think rightly so, because inflation is the most damaging thing to economy if it gets out of control. So they've said that's the number one fight. But if that means that more banks than we think are vulnerable because their interest rates hedges aren't as robust as they need to be, and their equity is going to get wiped out, then you have gold going to two, three thousand dollars, right? Because then you have a situation where no one wants to have, no one is a bit of hyperbole. People don't trust financial institutions. They want to get pulled their money out. Where are they going to put their money? Are they going to put it under their mattress? Maybe. They're going to go into money market funds. Yes, they're going to go into gold on a very large scale. And that's why we saw this move, right? That's why we saw gold spike up and touch two thousand dollars. So the Fed's playing a very tricky game here, right? They're trying to walk on a razor's edge. How do you fight inflation? and not causing extreme distress in the financial system vis-a-vis banks not having strong enough balance sheets to handle those interest rates hikes. But long story short, you have de-dollarization, you have a lot of uncertainty and trepidation around the financial system right now. And those are both extremely strong factors for gold. I think the final catalyst for a gold price massive spike would be that the Fed and central bankers coalesce and they say that, you know what, it's not worth the risk of financial collapse. So we're going to pull back on rate hikes or actually lower rates, right? If we see that, gold is going to do extremely well in that environment. And I think the probability of that happening is, is growing, right? Scarily so. It, it seems like we're just always facing more red flags and things are getting, unfortunately, you know, just, I mean, but at the same time as news people, 
it is a wonderful time. It is so dramatic as, you know, concerning as so much of this is. It, it is a dramatic time for us over here. Do you have any final thoughts for the audience here as we wrap up our conversation? Yeah, I would just echo what you just said there. I think that's a really salient point to make at the end. It's certainly an interesting time in the news business. It's certainly an excellent time for the metals business, precious and critical minerals. The world is going to need more critical minerals. We know that. They're going to be harder to get because of the geopolitical tensions. And the world is likely going to need a lot more gold to help stabilize the monetary system. So those are both strong. But these are unfolding in worrisome times, right? It's the, the factors that are leading that situation cause a lot of stress and angst among people. I would just probably close by saying that don't try not to let that stress and angst take too much hold. We all need to focus on what we have control over. We don't have control over U.S. and Chinese relations. So try not to fear in the abstract. Stay focused on the things we do have control over, our friends, our family, our investment portfolios. Stay well-informed. And, uh, and I'm a great believer in the human spirit. It looks like we're heading into a bit of a rough patch here for the next maybe five or 10 years. Again, I'm speaking about geopolitical tensions and U.S. and China and what might happen there. But human history shows that we always go through these rough patches and we always come out of them as well. Right? The human spirit is resilient. We learn from them and things get a little bit better again as well. So no one should lose sight of that as well. I'm not a doomsayer. I think we'll get through this rough patch as well. And uh, for the prudent investor, I think it's more important than ever to be a prudent investor and stay really well informed. And things like this podcast really help in that endeavor. So to you, Adrian, keep up the great work. We certainly appreciate all the work you do putting into these podcasts, doing all those researches, listening to podcasts from Africa to make sure you're getting multi perspectives on the issues and uh, you're doing a great service for all of the listeners and we'll do our best to make sure we're getting the word out about this podcast more and more going forward because it is so important well i totally appreciate that and those are nice optimistic words to end on keep it light in a sense anthony vaccaro president of the northern miner group thank you for joining us once again on the northern miner podcast it's been a pleasure being here adrian thanks goes to you Never a dull moment in this industry. People may think rocks in the ground are a boring thing, but these days mining seems to be at the heart of Western economic policy, if not global economic policy for governments around the world. So it continues to be dramatic. We will continue to cover it. And we appreciate you joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.